Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 7th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, this is not to be taken as investment advice. Anything you hear on this podcast or see or hear on this video is not financial or legal advice. I am not a financial advisor. I'm just a guy on the internet. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, this week's reality check. I think I would give a, a little bit of rest to the our favorite topic that I like talking about in the reality check, which is the disease that cannot be mentioned. So we're going to go to another disease, which is that of the rent-seeking oligarchy of rotating doors between various departments in the government and private industry, and uh, specifically the Federal Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve. So here's our first slide. Uh, I like following this guy on Twitter, Rudy Havenstein. Basically, it's a takeoff. This guy was the, uh, I don't know who this person is. This is a um, pseudonym, obviously. But this guy, Rudy Havenstein, was the central banker during the Weimar hyperinflation. So uh, he kind of has some really good stuff around this type of uh, discussion. And so we have a picture here of former Fed chairman Janet Yellen. And so here we have the, the uh, tweet. Okay, so in 2019 and 2020, Secretary Yellen, who was supposed to be head regulator of Citigroup in 2018, was paid $992,700 by um, Citigroup for, quote, speaking. She also got $810,000 from Ben Bernanke, benefactor Citadel. Citadel's a, a hedge fund or a private equity firm. This is blatant regulatory capture at best. So when Janet Yellen, I guess, left the Federal Reserve, when she retired or whatever, her term was up and uh, Jerome Powell took over. She went to work at Citigroup, which is a obviously a very large money center bank, international bank. And uh, she was supposed to be the head regulator, obviously, because, you know, the Federal Reserve ostensibly has regulatory authority over these banks. So who better to be the head of regulation at Citigroup than the former Fed Chairman Janet Yellen. And so this is just another, this is just part and parcel of the corruption of the rotating door between industry and various departments, various uh, places in the government. So you get these people in government, they get a government job. Uh, they're one of the masters of the universe, they're plugged in. And then when they get done, they rotate to private industry basically to the companies that they used to regulate or vice versa. They leave private industry, uh, either the banking industry or the you know, defense contractors or the pharma companies, and they rotate into government where they are then part in charge of the department that regulates the industry that they used to be in. This is called regulatory capture. Okay, this is what this is called, where you have people that are insiders this rotating door where they are, uh, the, the industries have captured the regulators, okay? And as I said before, uh, I don't know Janet Yellen's heart. I've never met Janet Yellen. I know nothing about Janet Yellen, except she was the Fed chairman. What I do know is, is that I'm like Charlie Munger, I am trying to become an expert in incentives. And so the incentive here is to collect big money 
for speaking at Citigroup where she already works. So um, this is just another example of the kind of shenanigans that go on. And people can choose to ignore it. They could say, you know, well, you know, it's not like that or she's not like that. How can you say that? Look, if you're that, if you're that dense, I don't know what else to say to you. This is what goes on. And this is the problem. This is one of the major problems we have uh, in our government. Okay. And I'm not just some old man barking at the moon or yelling at the kids on the lawn. I mean, this, I'm telling you what the problems are. And th this is how it is. And these people are not there for your benefit. They're there for their benefit. Okay. Uh, I already, you know, got pissed off and talked about this many moons ago. When the COVID thing first happened, I had a big trade. I was ready to, to go on. There was an ETF that shorts um, corporate high yield bonds, junk bonds. And so when the COVID thing started hitting, this thing started taking off because um, obviously when we had the economic lockdowns that were coming, the market was sniffing out the fact that these companies that are zombie companies wouldn't be able to pay the interest or the principal back on the debt. And so immediately this thing started taking off. I mean, it was going straight up. And even before, what happened was the, the, the Treasury, when they created their, uh, their, their special programs with the Fed to buy corporate bonds, okay, and they didn't, they didn't end up buying that many. But guess what? The thing rolled over before the announcement. So somebody was front running it. Somebody knew that the Fed and the Treasury were going to come in and they were going to backstop all these junk bonds. And they didn't even have to buy that many. They just had to announce that they were willing to buy some. They ended up buying a few some, but not to not hundreds of billions of dollars. I think they bought 13 or $15 billion worth. But you could see on the chart where somebody was front running it. Somebody knew that the announcement was coming. Is it just because somebody was so smart and was able to read the tea leaves? Or do these people talk to each other? These people circulate in the same groups, they, WhatsApp, telephone calls, emails, who knows what? Okay. I mean, really, that doesn't go on? I mean, am I supposed to be that naive? Again, these people are not angels. They're human beings like you and I. And they are subject to the same temptations and the same incentives uh, responses that everybody else is. And so here we go. Here's another montage from the same Twitter account. And we can just go down the list. You know, former Fed Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher to join BlackRock, another multi-trillion dollar uh, investment firm um, Barclays appoints Richard Fisher as senior advisor. This is another Fed, former Fed governor. William Dudley named senior advisor and appointed to Reliance Board of Directors. Hedge Fund Blue Mountain hires former Fed governor as consultant. Morgan Stanley hires former Fed official Vincent Reinhart. Neil Cash Carey, this guy's a piece of work. Quiet Path to PIMCO. You can read the rest here. Dr. Ben Bernanke to serve as a senior advisor to Citadel. He's not a trader. He's not a deal maker. He's a senior advisor. The guy's plugged into everybody back at the Fed. I mean, Dr. Alan Greenspan, the maestro, joins Advisors Capital Management as economic advisor. Greenspan to advise Deutsche Bank. Yellen gets a post-Fed payday in private meetings with Wall Street's elite. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And we just sit back and suck on it. This is a major problem. And, and nobody, nobody in Congress is talking about this because they're. This just not how it's done. No, there's no reform going on. Again, if you're going to serve in government, that's fine. 
You can be a government servant, serve your country, but you don't get to go back to the private sector for a decade. How many people want to be public servants now? Or let's make a permanent ban. If you want to be a permanent, if you want to serve your country, okay, uh, then, okay, fine. Then 10, 20 year ban on going back to the industry that you were previously regulating or had oversight on. How about that as a, uh, as a disincentive to this rotating door and this nonsense of this uh, regulatory capture that goes on. There's one more laugh from clown world. This is Neil Kashkari. I can't stand this guy. I think he's the Minneapolis Fed uh, governor. But uh, I like what this uh, Rudy Havenstein guy says. Oh, yeah, the Fed was just about to taper and then bam, Delta Force hit. He's talking about the Delta variant. And then he just <laughs> Joe Biden uh, thing, you know, come on, man. So it says here in the Reuters uh, headline, Fed's cash carry. Delta may throw wrinkle into taper plan. Man, they, they're just going to find any reason they can to keep buying these $120 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities and, and uh, treasury securities to keep the game going. So, you know, it's, it's the fixes in. Uh, they have a saying, you know, I think it was Doyle Brunson. Well, they have a saying in poker. You know, if you sit down at a poker table and uh, within, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, if you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker. And that's most uh, individual retail investors, the average person in this country, you're a sucker. You bought it. You went to the government controlled schools. You stood up and with your hand on your heart for the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, all this uh, civic uh, nationalism and all this stuff. And these people are raping you, bending you over and keistering you with no Vaseline. And people just keep taking it. There's no questions even asked. We focus on all this other stuff that doesn't matter. In the meantime, these people are raping the country uh, like, you know, raw dog. It's clown world. So another thing I wanted to get into that a lot of people seem to be missing is investors. You know, when you're an investor and you buy stock in a company, it's not a trading sardine. You know, I talked about a video in a video maybe just a month ago or so that the average holding period for stocks has declined to like less than a year. And so what a stock represents is share is a share in a particular business in the perceived or actual cash flow stream that that business can generate in the future. And so that's what you're really buying. You're buying businesses. When you're an investor, you're a person that buys businesses or pieces of businesses. Instead, what we've turned this thing into is a gambling casino because of these people that I just highlighted that have you know, lowered interest rates to 5,000-year lows. And they have enabled all type of speculation, malinvestment, and disconnected views from reality, which has enabled basically these bubbles that we keep seeing. And so what I wanted to talk about here was, you know, just to get back to finish the statement about if you're going to be an investor in stocks, you have to value them as businesses. And so, you know, if you were going to invest in a business, a dry cleaning business, and it generated, you know, let's say $80,000 a year in profits, I mean, there's a certain price you should pay for that. You should pay typically two to three times, maybe at the highest of the cash annual cash flow for a business. Say the cash flow of that business was 100 grand a year. A reasonable price would be. 200,000, maybe $250,000 for that business. Okay. 
you wouldn't, if the thing was generating $100,000 in cash flow, you wouldn't pay $5 million for it. But that's what people are doing now. They're paying 20 times, okay? They're paying 20 times uh, the sales of these businesses in the market. And we see what happened last time. Look at how out of whack reality is. Let's go back to the tech bubble, okay? At the time of the tech bubble, the total market cap of stocks that were trading at a price to sales ratio of 20 or 20 times sales, which is crazy. You could look at the averages like not even, you know, one time sales. It's like, that, that, that's, this is way out of the historical. These are bubble conditions. People are overpaying for streams of cash flow. And what's enabling this? Because rates are so low, you cannot be an investor. Everyone is forced to become now a speculator. Okay. Everybody's forced to become almost a gambler. You know, I've talked about this before. It used to be you could just go get a CD or a passbook savings account would pay you five, six, seven percent. That doesn't exist anymore. Where are you going to get yield? Somebody wrote to me in one of the comments of the previous videos, or maybe a newsletter subscriber, what do you do with your cash, John, between investments? That's a good question because money markets, if you just have your cash and have it get swept into a money market fund that, at your brokerage firm, you're basically getting nothing. You're basically getting you know, a few basis points of T-bill interest, if that. But they're making margin loans with that money and other things that they're doing with your money, and they're keep capturing that spread, and you're getting ripped off. And this is why people feel like they need to be more fully invested than they probably should at these bubblicious conditions, because they want to get some yield. You know, we talked about it before, maybe two weeks ago, with the inflation rate where it is now, you're losing purchasing power. You know, once you have an inflation rate of, you know, we have negative real rates of 5% and your money's sitting in the bank, you lose 5% of purchasing power, you don't get it back. They've stolen it from you. That's the whole game. Financial repression, keep interest rates low, let the inflation rate get above it and then steal your money via inflation. And there's not one person in 10,000 that understands how that's done. And that's how they get away with it. I mean, there's a Henry Ford quote where he said that if the people in this country understood how our monetary system works, there would be pitch, basically, they'd be out in the streets with pitchforks and torches the next day. But nobody knows. They don't teach anything in school. So everybody has to learn this stuff on their own. So I caution you when you see this, you saw what happened during the last tech wreck. If you were alive or if you were old enough to understand what was going on, some of us were old enough, we were involved, we were in it. And you could see the bubblish conditions. Now it's even worse now. This is so out of whack from the historical narrative. You know, if you looked at this and didn't know what it was, you'd be like, something's not right here. Something, which, which one of these is not like the others? And why is there such a disparate, uh, you know, I mean, you have trillions of dollars. This, this doesn't normally happen. You don't have trillions of dollars of market cap of stocks trading at a price to sales ratio of 20 times. It's just nuts. So people will say, you know, well, the prospects for these companies are so good. You don't understand. They're good businesses. It doesn't matter. What you pay for a business is what matters. And so here's the research that they did. Okay. This is from Barron's. This is the returns on stocks with price to sales multiples of greater than 15 times. Remember, we have 
$4.5 trillion of stock market, stock market market cap trading at 20 times sales. So what happens with your returns if you're buying stocks at valuations that are at 15 times sales or more? Well, uh, in a quarter year, you, you, you have a loss. You know, basically, you don't have, the more you pay for stuff, the less correlated it is to positive returns. And this is 19, this is 50 years of data. So if you overpay, if you pay for these, these bubblicious stocks, regardless of what their prospects are, about how great the business does, if you overpay for those businesses, your returns are going to be negative long-term. You're not going to get a good return. That's just how it is. Now, these, in the meantime, you could say, well, I'm making money right now. You could. I mean, things can get more bubblicious, but then you could have a 50 or 60% drawdown and it just wipes out everything. And then you don't recover. This is what happened during the last tech bubble. The business continued to perform sales and earnings, but the stocks were so overvalued. It took them, in some cases, 15, 20 years for the valuations to, to, to or the sales and earnings to catch up with the valuation, even after they got whacked. So, these things matter. It matters how much you pay for a, for a stock. How, it matters how much you pay for a business. And that's why I'm trying to buy businesses that are out of favor, that have an inflection where we're going to have this big ramp up in cash flow. Most of these are cyclical businesses currently, and that they're, they're undervalued. I'm not paying with coal stocks and some of these oil stocks 15, 20 times sales. Something to keep a track of here. I don't know what this series is. I'm not familiar with this cross-border capital. I just thought it was interesting because it kind of shows, you know, the COVID shut lockdowns here and this uh, went negative in this particular metric. And then, you know, we had this post-COVID return, but now you see things are kind of like, you know, coming down again. And I'm, I'm wondering if we're, you know, the, we're losing momentum in these you know, in, in various economies around the world. And so it'll be something interesting to watch as a data point. Uh, I like to look at PMI, uh, Purchasing Managers Index, for an uh, indication of where an economy is going. Right now, a lot of the economies around the world are above 50. Above 50 indicates expansion, but we do see slowdowns in the, in, you know, we've seen things come like China, or even the U.S. come from this, you know, like 65 down to 61, something like that. So the rate, you're still in expansion, but the the magnitude of the expansion, it seems to be shrinking. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going into recession. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying it's it makes sense to watch this because I've also shown a chart before that based on where PMI is will give you a good indication of where you could see uh, copper prices or oil prices a year, six months or a year out. Obviously, if economic activity is shrinking, the demand for commodities is going to shrink also. This should just be intuitive. But it's something to pay attention to and to look at, in my view. So this was a chart. I think this is really, really great. Um, what it shows is the evolution of humanity's energy systems. And what it shows you is, is that when you make a transition in energy from one to from an old less dense to more dense, it, the previous 
energy source doesn't go away. It's just supplemented. It's additive. And so this is the point I wanted to make. So you see back in 1800s, early 18, like 1800 wood and other traditional small scale biofuels were the traditional, were the, the, um, the energy, um, source that was used. And then when coal mining started and the advent of the steam engine, you see coal started to eat into the amount, but the total demand for energy was going up, but wood didn't go away. It got smaller as a share, but it did not go away. As a matter of fact, we still use wood. It's the same thing. Then oil, you know, you had the oil, um, transition from coal to oil, coal just kind of stayed the same and oil expanded. It's the same thing. And so what I'm trying to make the point is here is this idea that, and here's renewables here that you can barely see at the top with all of the hype. This is where we're at with renewables. Um, you're going to replace all of this. That's not the historical narrative. There will probably be more renewables regardless of what anybody thinks or wants or cares about. But these other sources aren't going to go away because the total demand for energy continues to increase. That's the whole point. Uh, what we've seen here is that this is additive over time. You don't just say, okay, we went to coal, so we stopped using wood, or we used, went to oil and natural gas and coal went away. These things are, they find their niche and they, they don't completely supplement the previous one. And so the same thing, this view that you think that you're going to just uh, in the next, uh, by 2030, replace all of this is just nutso. It's not going to happen. And that's the opportunity because with the zeitgeist being that we're going to strangle, try to strangle these industries because they carbon be bad, uh, renewables be good, uh, it ain't going to happen like that. And you're already seeing, I'm going to get into this, some other slides coming up, there's already pushback. You have record energy prices in some countries in Europe, and the politicians are getting scared now. They're talking about, uh, you know, they've already relaxed some conditions in some of the countries to allow more fossil fuel to come online. Because you know what? When people have to double their electrical costs or the price of their fuel oil to heat their house or whatever the case may be, doubles or triples, some, uh, there's going to be a change in the government. Let's put it that way, one way or another. So just like we talked about, dirty fuels, I say that within italics, are surging. So I'll put, try to put links to some of these. I think I saved most of the links in a Word document. I'll attach them to the show notes as usual where I can so that you can look at the articles yourself and get the context. I can't obviously put the whole article on these slides. I just try to give you the snippets that I think are relative or important. But anyways, here we go. Green types had hoped that the recovery from the pandemic might jumpstart the world's decarbonization efforts. Governments say they want to build back better and greener and have announced ambitious plans to kick the fossil fuel habit. Despite the grand talk, though, fossil fuels are resurgent. A recent report from the International Energy Agency makes for sobering reading. Global electricity demand is forecast to grow by nearly 5% in 2021 and 4% in 2022. Fossil fuel-based power will probably make up 45% of the extra demand this year and 40% next year. By contrast, it made up about a quarter of new power generation in 2019. So there you have it. The demand for electricity 
the demand for energy that inculcates and is part of every activity that we do as a human being is going to constantly rise over time. And now we see, like I've said before, we have these populations in Asia, China, and India that are getting into their S-curves as their middle classes are now coming into, into fruition as they're blooming. Obviously, China's ahead of, uh, of uh, India, but uh, their energy demands are going to rise exponentially. And you, and you can't forget about other countries. I mean, let's not forget about a country like Indonesia. Nobody talks about it. It's the seventh you know, largest. It has 250 million people. It's the seventh largest population in the world. Nobody even talks about it. You know, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, you know, all Africa, which hasn't even begun to develop yet. I mean, a billion people there. I mean, forget about it. There's no way that the Greens are going to realize their, unless, unless energy demand is choked off. If the elites put you in lockdowns or force you to work from home or force you to live a certain way, then they can do it. But it's going to take a lot of, of violence to make that happen, in my view. And are they prepared to do that violence? We'll see. Because this is what they want. They want this climate change. This is the natural progression from the disease that could be not, not be mentioned, where 99.85% of the people survive it, that get it, to, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're transition to this new to build back better and greener because their mouth is watering. Cause the thing they realized when the data came out, when they had you all locked down is that CO2 emissions went down. Now they got to figure out how to lock you down and restrain economics, growth and prosperity for the majority of the people. They're trying to figure out how to do that. And they're training you. Okay. With all their little shenanigans. I don't think it's going to work personally. Um, I think people are going to rise up. I think this is going to get ugly uh, sooner rather than later. The narrative's starting to come apart. Uh, and even the most dullard person, uh, I think, is going to um, wake up. These things have a tendency to be like pendulums. And, you know, we're swinging way far to the left now. And when this thing swings back the other way, uh, I think there's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a lot of uh, people that are not going to be happy. Let's put it that way. That's my view. That's why I think that, uh, you know, things are going to be very tumultuous over the next decade or so, and uh, could lead to some uh, really uh, hairy situations. But long story short, you know, we're seeing this, we're seeing record coal prices at Newcastle again, we're seeing Met coal prices up, we're seeing, you know, and we're seeing more and more news every week, which I'll get into some more slides about more and more fossil fuel companies, more and more energy companies, you know, committing ritual seppuku and uh, restraining themselves from growing. It's crazy. So this is what I'm talking about. Here's another um, Twitter chart that I was able to get. So you look at supercharged power in the graph here. German electricity prices are much higher than usual. So you see the band for the 10, and then you see the uh, high and lows going back uh, for a while, um, for the, and then you see the 10-year average bouncing around there in the middle of those two bands. Then you see the current price. I mean, uh, this is what's going to create the change. People are not going to stand for this. Maybe this is just transitionary. Maybe this is a temporary blip. Maybe I've got this all wrong and this crashes because deflation, it's just going to end up down here for a while or back inside the band and everything will go back to normal, but I doubt it. 
So what do we, what does this tweet say? Europe is facing an energy shock amid surging power and natural gas prices. Germany's wholesale power prices are at a 13 year high. Spain's electricity rates rallied to a record high. Dutch TTF gas benchmark is trading near all time high. And you're just seeing more and more of these type of articles, right? Because uh, there's several things conspiring here. Uh, hot weather, the uh, Gazprom is not sending enough gas, or Russia's not sending as much gas to Europe. Uh, there's a lot of big pull and demand for L LNG. So gas is uh, um, in demand around the world and there may not be enough, right? I mean, uh, if you keep drilling, that, that's fine. But, you know, because of the, the lockdowns and stuff, we're restarting everything, basically turning everything off like a key and then turning it back on. It takes time to ramp things up. So we're seeing, we're seeing the repercussions, right? And it may not work out like they think. We've talked about it in the past videos about where people can switch from natural gas to coal. That's what they're doing. And that's really done a lot for a lot of the coal stocks that uh, we're interested in. Just something to watch, right? I mean, this is what we were thinking. This is the betting against the uh, narrative that's incorrect. And the narrative that is incorrect is that uh, we are going to do all these wonderful things by 2030. It's stupid. It's not going to happen. If you think that, then you are ignorant of history, economics, and physics. So energy stops growing. Uh, Harris Kupperman, uh, we really like him here at the uh, Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. Uh, really smart guy. Um, also uh, involved in a company he controls that uh, in the portfolio, uh, like listening to him, but he coined this term for ESG, he calls it energy stops growing. And so what we have here, uh, maybe I'm reading something into this, but here we go. Chevron, which is, you know, is a major multinational oil company, fossil fuel company, oil and gas, that's their bread and butter, that's their expertise, that's their um, wheelhouse. They uh, announce a leadership change. So Jeff Gustafson appointed president Chevron New Energies. Okay. Chevron Corporation today named Jeff Gustafson president Chevron New Energies effective August 2nd. Gustafson will serve as corporate officer report to Chevron chairman, CEO Michael Worth. Gustafson will lead a new dedicated organization focused on low carbon business prospects that have the potential to scale. Chevron New Energy's initial focus will include commercialization opportunities in hydrogen, carbon capture and offsets and support of ongoing growth in biofuels. Additional detail about these efforts will be provided on September 14th during the company's energy transition spotlight. My advice to anyone listening is that if you own any of these multinational corporations that are in the oil and gas business, and I'm going to name them Chevron, Exxon, Total, BP, I mean, any of these big companies, sell them. They are not oil companies. They don't want to be oil companies anymore. They are falling for the narrative. And this is going to, if you read the, uh, the quarter two um, and, uh, report from Rose, uh, Goring and Rosenzweig came out this week, and they talk about this. They go through and talk about, and I'll probably do a video about it. They talk about all these oil companies that are basically going to just self-immolate themselves. They're going to quit exploring for oil and gas. 
They're going to go off and do this. I mean, they've done this before, guys. If you know the history of this, it wasn't ESG. So back during the last oil uh, spike, like during the after the Arab oil embargo and the, during the Jimmy Carter years, all these oil companies started trying to diversify, right? I mean, you had, I, I, I think, uh, Exxon. I mean, they got into uranium mining. One of them bought a chip company. I think it was Schlumberger was involved in semiconductors. All these wacky businesses because they wanted to get away from oil because it was so volatile and blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing here. This isn't going to work. You're an oil company. You, you, I, I wish I was running one of these oil companies. I was, you, know, you, you can't do it, right? Because it's the shareholders. You've got like these companies like BlackRock, okay, who own all these shares, Vanguard, Fidelity, all these mutual funds. And then you get this little pissant uh, activist that gets in there and they, they start pushing this agenda. And these, they get these uh, big shareholders that have a lot of sway to go along with it. So the guy doesn't, if you're running one of these companies, you don't really have a choice. Now, I think it's going to open up a tremendous amount of opportunity for independent owner operators or smaller companies that don't, aren't going to bend the knee to this. Okay. Because the demand for oil isn't going to go away anytime soon. Okay. It's probably going to reach all new, all time highs sometime next year. And the production is not going to be there. We are heading for an energy crisis because of the lack of investment and this kind of nonsense. Why is this company, if you don't want to be, I mean, the board of directors of this company is there to, to oversee the management of an oil and gas exploration and production company. If you don't want to be in that business, then you should go somewhere else. Okay. But trying to make this into carbon capture and what else they got hydrogen and all this nonsense is going to take the focus away and investment away from producing more oil and gas. And as we have said before, oil and gas being an extractive industry, if you're not constantly out looking for more oil and gas, at some point you'll go out of business. And that's exactly what the article in the Goring and Rosenzweig report talks about. These companies are in self-liquidation now as they go off to never, never land to try to create uh, this fantasy to appease uh, these activist shareholders. And it is not going to end well, but there will be opportunities. Uh, there's major companies in Russia that are uh, in China and small independent uh, companies in the US and places, other places that will try to step up. And, and if they can get capital, they'll, they're going to show up and, and, and explore for oil. And I can tell you something else right now. When's this going to end? When oil goes to $150 or $200 a barrel, you'll, uh, Mr. Gustafson will be looking for a new job, and uh, the, this entire management team will be replaced. Of course, they'll all be multimillionaires by then. They'll sail off, and no one will hear from them again, and these companies will go back to doing what they normally did before. That's it. That's how it works, and uh, that's my prediction. So uh, get ready for it. I think it's going to happen, and uh, that's how it's going to go down. If you're not continuously invest, I mean, I'm not even talking about billions of dollars, hundreds like six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year has to be invested to replace the oil that we pump every year. This world is using 30, 30, 32 billion barrels of oil per year. If you're not out finding that and replacing it, at some point, it's a problem. And it's going to become a problem sooner rather than later. And I think it's going to be a big wake up call for a lot of people. But it's, it's, it's going to be an excellent opportunity for us that know what's going on. So um, I just 
you know, I was looking at the um, rig counts here in the U.S. and they're not really increasing with the oil price. And a lot of it is because there was a lot of uh, wells that were drilled, but they were not completed. So you have these drilled but not drilled and uncompleted inventory. And you see that uh, over time recently, uh, the lack of drilling, they've just been, instead of putting money into drilling new wells, they've just been completing the wells that have already been drilled. But this inventory is working its way lower, if you will. So I just wanted to put this up here because I think somebody had asked me why I thought we weren't seeing a reaction to, you know, WTI over 70 and um, why drilling rigs aren't taken off in the U.S. I think one of the reasons is because of this, but another reason is that a lot of the top tiered best prospects have been drilled off. And that's another thing that they talk about in the uh, Goring and Rosenzweig uh, report about uh, they used a, a neural net AI to try to figure this out. And their suspicion or view is that most of the top tier one uh, areas have been drilled off. And so it's going to take very a lot higher oil prices to entice a lot of these companies, which have already said over and over on their earnings calls coming out of Q2, that they're sticking to the return of capital to shareholders, not drilling for the sake of drilling, uh, that we're not going back to the old shale boom. The, 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 there's no incentive to go there. There's no money to do that. And the managements are have, in many cases, been replaced and put back with managements that are, are looking to pay down debt and return capital to shareholders and turn the, 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 the owning of a stock uh, in one of these companies into an investment that has a return, not just a money sink. Okay, I think this is one of the last slides. I thought this was in German. Uh, I, um, I uh, translated it with Google Translate. So it's not, you got to kind of read into it a little bit because it's, you know, direct, it's a direct, it's not perfect translation. So Spanish wind power subsidy troubles Siemens Energy. And there's a couple points to here that I think are interesting. The challenges of the energy transition are also noticeable at Siemens Energy. Now, Siemens Energy is like the GE of Germany. It's a very large conglomerate that's involved in a lot of aspects of energy production and machinery production and steam turbines, gas turbines, wind power, the whole shebang, all kinds of other stuff. It's a big conglomerate like GE. In the third quarter of the physical year, onshore wind power caused considerable financial difficulties. It belongs to the subsidiary Siemens Gamesa. Now, Siemens Gamesa is the uh, wind power uh, part of Siemens. It's a merger between Siemens and Gamesa. Gamesa was a Spanish wind power company. I've worked with this outfit, Siemens Gamesa. It's a shit show. Uh, they merge these things, these two companies, and I could I could sit here for an hour and talk about some of the things I saw. I mean, it's not they didn't integrate properly. They had, it was a mess. Um, so anyways, problems at the wind power subsidiary Siemens Gamesa have brought Siemens energy into the red. In the past quarter, the group made a loss of over 300 million euros. The traditional business with fossil energy, such as coal and gas, is right on track and shines with a big plus in incoming orders. This is talking about Siemens fossil energy business of coal and gas is right on track and has a lot of incoming orders. On the other hand, the hoped for turnaround in future oriented wind turbines is still a long way off. And so we have a quote here from the, um, I think one of the executives at Siemens says, in the case of onshore wind turbines, we are depressed by high raw material prices and project costs. 
and that just has to get better for the result of the entire company, unquote. Siemens Gamesa is struggling with sharply rising prices for steel and copper, but also with problems with the ramp up of the new 5.x generation of turbines. So again, you know, everything's fine on the fossil side, but uh, for some reason they can't make money on the, um, their onshore wind. Now in the article, they do talk about the fact that uh, the offshore wind is doing fairly good. So I don't want to like just use this as a template to slam them, but you know, this, I, I want to go back to it. This idea is so tradable, so actionable that, that this it's a false idea. We're not going to transition to this fantasy world by 2030. We could see it. You can see it coming down the pipe. It's like a train heading for you. And if you don't get off the tracks, you're going to get run over, but it represents tremendous opportunity in my view over the next three to five years. Like I said, I believe we're going to have an energy crisis. I think it's we're going to have oil prices and get natural gas prices, by the way, too, that are going to shock people. And I think that if you're positioned correctly, uh, it's going to lead to um, uh, really, really outsized gains. I also think that it'll probably put a nail in this nonsense once and for all. People, people are spoiling for a fight. The people out there in the world right now, um, they think they're isolated. You know, the media is controlling things, social media. We're, uh, myself, among thousands of others, alternative media, podcasters, people that are trying to uh, speak the truth, uh, the listenership are, are, is growing everywhere, and they're trying to block us left and right, but uh, the word's getting out, and people don't have to feel isolated. They know that there's other people that have the same views, and we're the majority, and the narrative is coming apart, and I think that uh, a lot of people are going to realize that they were rooked, that they were taken for a ride and that they were sold a bill of goods. And, uh, you know, with markets being bubblicious everywhere, I mean, we're primed for a revolution here. I mean, something's going to happen. I mean, we're going to have three bubbles in the space of 20 or 25 years, wipe people out three times, completely wipe them out. And this bubble so big when it bursts, and it will burst eventually. I mean, what are the repercussions going to be for society? What are they going to be the repercussions for pensions? For, 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 for people's financial weatherthal? How many people are going to be kicked out of their houses? Uh, how many people are going to lose their jobs? How many people are going to say enough is enough? And so, and you couple that, you know, if it's in the case of a, of a stagflationary environment where gas is $7 a gallon and food prices are, 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 are you know, I'm, go try to buy a couple of T-bones over at Kroger or at a, at, at a uh, butcher shop. I mean, the prices are out of control. How are, I have, I'm fortunate, uh, like I said, I can pay the prices, but what are, what are people doing that can't, that are living on the margin? How are people surviving? How are they eating? What are they eating? And so uh, I, I just think that uh, we are coming to a head, if you will, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, I believe this is the last slide. Yes, it is. Uh, so thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to be trying to put out more videos uh, just because I've got to devote more time to this. I, I want to try to take it full time at some point. And so you're going to see my work level, my work output increase. Um, I'm writing down suggestions. I've seen people making suggestions for different content in the, and I'll try to uh, take that into consideration. And if I think it makes sense, or if I have something to say on that particular topic, I will uh, try to accommodate that. So anyways, uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for watching and we'll talk to you next week.